Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer's Sermon Podcast. The readings appointed for this sermon are from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 7 through 14, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, and 15 through 19a, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, and 19 through 23, and Psalm 84, verse 1 through 8. God grant us serenity to accept the things that we cannot change, courage to change the things that we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So just a little over a week ago, we heard the story of Jesus' birth, and we hear the story of shepherds being excited to hear about this new presence in the world, this deliverance, and running, pursuing, trying to get a first glimpse and see Jesus in person. And this coming Thursday at the Feast of the Epiphany, we will recognize and remember uh, those, those wise people who followed the star and knew that a new king, a new ruler, a new person brought by God would be bringing deliverance and joy to the world. And they seek this little baby out as well. Today we hear the other side of that coin, which is we hear, and I'm not sure if it was clear enough in the story, but From the moment Jesus is born in the gospel, according to Matthew, he is pursued and hunted to be killed. At the beginning of the story, Joseph and Mary grab Jesus and they flee as refugees to Egypt to hide because King Herod seeks to kill the baby, Jesus. Herod is threatened by Jesus by the mere birth and existence of Jesus. And so he threatens to kill him. And that's how the story is told today. It's only by divine intervention that Jesus survives that. And I'm I'm astounded by this reality because, as you've all heard me say before, you know, babies can't do much, right? But the beauty of the Christmas story is this little baby holds all this hope, holds all this power in the presence of God that even though the baby isn't telling stories yet or performing miracles yet, we recognize the baby himself as a miracle, that this life is a gift of grace. And we rally around that at Christmas. And amidst our troubles and our strife, amidst our uncertainty and anxiety, we take some rest and find some hope and joy in this simple fact of this life. But today we find out that the simple fact of this life, the simple presence and existence of Jesus in the world is also a threat. And we need to confront that today. We, we tend to say, well, you know, Jesus taught things that were dangerous. And if we really took Jesus seriously, we would realize what a threat he was to the community's status quo. I believe that, by the way. But we tend to think it's because of what Jesus taught that he was killed. It's because of what Jesus taught that if we take his teachings seriously, maybe we can follow in that path and become Christ-like 
and be more Christian. Or maybe it's because of his miracles, because of the miraculous things that Jesus did. In the gospel according to John, it is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead that the religious authorities finally say, he's too dangerous, we have to kill him. Because of his miraculous power, Jesus is targeted. Now in Mark and Luke, in those gospel stories, it is when Jesus goes into the temple, overturns the tables of the money changers, drives out all of the merchants, and says this is a house of God, of prayer for all people. And then teaches right in the center of that temple at the height of the Passover. It is in that moment Jesus teaching his words, his actions are dangerous. And it is in that moment that the religious authorities say, we got to get rid of this guy. But in Matthew, all Jesus does to be hunted is be born. It's the very existence of Jesus that is threatening to the powers of this world. Herod the Great, I think he named himself Herod the Great. It's usually how it works, right? If you're something the great, it's usually something you, a title you gave yourself, and we should all be weary of people who give themselves nicknames, just as a rule, okay? But Herod the Great is, is an obvious villain. Anytime you're trying to kill infant babies, villain, got it, okay? Especially when that baby happens to be our Lord and Savior. Super villain, got it. Also a human being who has lived on this planet and is working for something. In fact, Herod has spent his entire life working to broker a fragile peace in the Roman Empire. You see, through Herod and his political machinations, through the work that he's done, Israel has been allowed to exist as Israel within the Roman Empire. Sure, they're a vassal state with no real power. They are still, they belong to Rome. And the area of Judea and around Jerusalem has its own Roman prelates and soldiers and governance. And we know that as we all come to know Pontius Pilate in just a couple of months. We know this. So Israel's never actually free. Israel's never actually liberated and never actually free to be themselves the way that God has promised, the way we heard read today in Jeremiah. Not yet. But Herod has worked in his life to create a space where Israel can at least call itself Israel, where there can be temple worship, where there can be Israel, Israelite customs being observed, and these things aren't taken from them. He has created a space of fragile peace with this empire that overlooks him so that he can say, look, Israel, we get to be Israel. We get to be God's people. He's worked throughout his life to create some kind of semblance of identity for these people. We can still think he's a villain, it's fine, but we should recognize his humanity and what he has at stake. Jesus' birth is told to him by the wise ones who come from the East as a deliverance from God, God's presence in the world 
God is showing up. God's action of healing and recovery, of rehabilitation and reconciliation is being undertaken in the birth of this child. And Herod's first response is, kill it. Because it's a threat. I did not spend my whole life working for this country so that some baby, some peasant baby, can come along and usurp me and undermine this work and unsettle the fragile peace and destroy and undermine the status quo that is supposed to be good for our people? No. That's a threat. And I want it gone. And I would love, love, love to continue to think of Herod as a supervillain sitting in his chair, maybe stroking a cat and thinking about the downfall of Jesus. But I feel too connected to him when I hear the story told. Yes, the teachings of Jesus are challenging. Yes, his miracles point to the powerful presence of God in the world and of God's blessing and love for those that we tend to marginalize and ignore. These things are absolutely true. And also, Jesus' mere presence in the world threatens our world's point of view. If I take seriously that God's deliverance is being brought to bear in this world, whether I like it or not, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Me personally, by the way, not just like the broad, abstract human me. Like, Phil, I don't like it. Because see, I have this really wonderful personality quirk where I like to be the center of everything. Look at how I'm dressed and where I'm standing. It's my whole life. It's ridiculous. I have this weird thing of, I want to make sure that I'm part of things, but not just part of things. I want to know that I'm valuable. I mean, come on. Don't you want to know that you're valuable? Don't you want to know that you matter? Of course you want to know. You want to know that you did well. You want to hear, when you read at the church for the first time ever, that you read beautifully. Nancy, you read beautifully. And your voice matters in this church. Isn't that awesome? And also, if you didn't do it, we'd survive. And that's hard to hear. I could shut up and sit down, and God would continue to work. And that's hard for me. I'm scared. Even during this impossible time, I have brokered a fragile peace with this world. I have figured out how to survive and how to live. I wouldn't say thrive, but how to live and maybe mimic someone who's thriving in this pandemic world. I don't want anything messing that up. Do I want peace? Yes. Do I want harmony? Yes. Do I want God to come in and save the day? Oh, please, yes. Does that also make me feel threatened and uncomfortable? Absolutely. Because God's presence, for me to acknowledge God's presence and action in the world, 
will require something of me, will threaten the the fragile peace I've brokered in this imperfect world. And I don't like that. Save me on my terms. Or better yet, empower me to save myself. Give me the strength to save this world so I have something to be proud of. One of the hardest parts of this whole pandemic is how powerless we feel. Because we keep thinking if we just do the right thing, we'll end the pandemic. And it keeps not ending. I don't know if you knew that. It is still going. But if we shift our view to see this world not as something we need to save, but as a world that God is saving, that this is a world where God is at work and we are being invited to witness and the presence and the power of God, that shifts the way we experience all of this. Instead of saying, what are we going to do to make this thing end? We say, God will bring this pandemic to an end. What will be my part in it? You know, all the old gospel songs, there's so many wonderful gospel songs, they define the bringing of God's glory as a train. All the way back to Sister Rosetta Tharp singing this train, or Woody Guthrie, this train is bound for glory, or even the temptation, not the temptation, it's it's, uh, it's, uh, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. People get ready, there's a train coming. And Bob Dylan, you all know I love him, when he converts to Christianity, the first thing he sings is, there's a slow train coming. There's this idea of inevitability in the train that comes, right? Because it's on tracks. We know where it's coming from, and the destination is already set by the tracks. There's this gospel language of God's power and God's deliverance as something that is inevitable. It's on a track. It's moving forward. God is in the world doing the work. And what can you do when the train comes by? Well, you can get on or not, but you're not the conductor and you're not the train. You're a passenger in this life. How does it threaten us, God's presence and the inevitability of God's work when it takes us out of the driver's seat? How are we threatened by God's presence? when it decenters us, makes us not the center of everything? How does it give us hope? How does it give us relief and peace? Even as we're threatened and discomfited, how wonderful is it to know that the salvation of the world is not on your shoulders? It's something that's happening and you're being invited to participate. A couple years ago, the leadership of this church put together what we call a vision statement. It sounds very corporate when you say it out loud, isn't it? A vision statement. And we can treat it that way too, as if we can look at it and say, how do we become this thing? We have a vision of a worshiping community that knows Jesus and grows in love. That's, I want to be a part of that kind of community. A community that's united in relationships of holy connection and communion. A community that's growing 
with people of all ages and races and genders and sexual orientation and socioeconomic situation and political persuasion, of a people who are inspired, inspired by our understanding of why we're even Christian or why we're Episcopalian or why Redeemer matters to us, and finally, a people, a worshiping community that's sent into the world, rooted and grounded in love to serve all people with humility, compassion, and faithfulness. When you hear that vision, part of you is like, yeah, I want to do that, but the other part of us is like, how do we accomplish it? What do we do to make it happen? What if it's happening because God has decided this is who we will be? What if this vision we had was not a statement of what we hoped to be someday, but an acknowledgement of how the Holy Spirit is already working in our lives? What if it wasn't something we had to earn, achieve, or accomplish? What if our vision of God's transforming presence is a vision of what is already becoming? My prayer for all of us is that we can decenter ourselves enough and recognize the salvation of God is an inevitability. Like the train on the tracks. An inevitability. You do not conjure God's existence or achieve God's salvation. It's something that's being brought to bear in your heart, in this community, and in our world. The question for us is not how do we make it happen? It's where do we see it? Where do we see it? And when we see it and are threatened and hopeful at the same time, when we see God's presence, when we see God's deliverance, when we see God's work in this world, how will we respond?